Hey everybody, welcome to ARE Live. I'm Mark Tier, the founder of Black Spectacles, and today we're going to be covering uh, the project management uh, exam. Uh, everyone knows, you know, the best way to prepare for these tests is to get in as many questions as you can. So that's what we're here to do. Uh, we have five questions today in a mock exam on this particular division of the ARE. Um, and the hope is that uh, you know, we're going to go through uh, a number of different topics and uh, you'll get some extra practice uh, for this exam. Uh, a couple of notes here for you guys. Uh, first, you've probably heard that some of the Prometric testing facilities are supposed to open up on May 31st. Uh, 2020, of course, um, with limited seating capacity. So we've been trying to encourage people to sign up uh, to, you know, for your next test as soon as possible. One of the things that they're sort of expecting is first, they're likely to open up at 50% capacity. Um, and so because of that, uh, they're imagining that the seats will go relatively fast. Um, so if you haven't signed up, um, you know, we're encouraging people to to try to sign up now. I believe you can you can sign up now even though the testing facilities haven't opened yet. Um, so that's one note. Uh, as we often do, we'll have a special discount for Black Spectacles individual memberships to share at the end of the uh, the episode. Um, our next episode, though, um, will be on June 18th. Uh, we're going to cover project planning and design. Uh, we'll do another mock exam, and we'll be joined with Mike Newman again. Uh, as you guys know, uh, PPD, this test is one of the mega tests um, and so what we're going to do is we'll focus on uh, some of the more important topics um, with another mock exam uh, to get some practice in. We'll touch on things like evaluating design alternatives, uh, cultural behavior, technical and economic issues. Um, so, you know, the goal is, again, to get some more practice in uh, on that test. For those of you that are joining uh, us here for the first time, uh, a little bit about Black Spectacles. We're the first ever NCARB approved test prep provider for all six of the ARE 5.0 divisions. And, you know, we provide test prep uh, through four different, you know, subscription levels. Um, uh, so you have, you know, some choices for how you want to, uh, you know, leverage the tools that we have. One note is that uh, our newest uh, membership tier is called Expert, um, which includes everything that's in the pro membership. Uh, but we added something new called our virtual workshops. Uh, and the idea is for two hours every Sunday, uh, you'll meet with a, uh, an expert uh, who's recently passed the tests. And uh, you will go through uh, one or two exercises with a group of people uh, specific to that exam. And those exercises are targeted on the most difficult parts of the test. Um, and then that's followed by a Q&A. So you can you know, ask any specific questions that you have. Uh, so far, you know, we've been running it for about a little over a, maybe two months now. And uh, so far, it's been really well received. So take a peek at the expert subscription. Um, and if you're a firm member, many of many of our firm members listening to this, um, you should know that our updated firm memberships do include these virtual workshops. So if you and your colleagues want to benefit from the live personalized instruction, um, you know you can uh, you can do so if you currently have that in your membership. Um, but if you want a firm uh, membership, if that's something you think your firm might be interested in, you can go to blackspectacles.com/firms uh, to learn more about that. Lastly, uh, today we're going to be engaging exclusively in our community uh, during the podcast going forward. So today and going forward. So hop into that thread. If you go to community.blackspectacles.com, 
I'm going to drop a link here into this webinar, but you can go over there and uh, there's a discussion that's already been started uh, about this specific uh, mock exam. And everyone who posts in that uh, PJM thread today will be eligible to, to win a free Black Spectacles t-shirt at the end of the podcast. Um, so stay tuned for that. Our guest, of course, is um, Mr. Mike Newman, uh, a senior lecturer at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, as well as the founder of Shed Studio, and he is the instructor of Black Spectacles online ARE prep lectures. Um, and uh, based on what we talked about uh, a few minutes ago, uh, the soon-to-be uh, proprietor of uh, what were you going to open up, Mike? Uh, yes, uh, 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 <laughs> Mike Newman's uh, Extraordinary Urgent Care Center. Uh, urgent like Care that. Center. Okay. <laughs> Happy that you're uh, you're feeling better uh, and uh, and um, yeah, and able to to join us today. Um, so with that, Mike, uh, ha happy to hand it over to you. All right. Uh, so yeah, we're going to be talking about uh, project management, um, and we're going to just dive right in um, on uh, question number one. Um, I'm going to do a kind of a funny thing here, though. Before we really read through question number one, I'm just going to notice a couple of things. It talks about a library project, so uh, we know there's something going on there, uh, and it has a lot of detail, but it also references a chart. So let's take a look at the chart first, and then we'll go back and read through the question. Uh, so here's a chart, and here's the, it says uh, library uh, hours analysis, and there's a line of uh, information about individual people. Uh, so presumably all the employees who are working on this project, there's then some information about what their role is, uh, what their billable rate is. And then over, as you move through the chart, you see there's the schematic design, design development, uh, contract documents, the bidding, and then the construction administration. So all the phases of the architectural project are uh, listed out. Uh, and then you can see there's a bunch of numbers filled in. So uh, let's go back read the question now that we have an idea of what's in the chart and we'll come back to it in a minute. So, okay, number one, during an architectural project for a new library, you've been tasked to track the hours spent and the billable hours available to finish. The total fee is $200,000. The project is a classic design bid build project delivery. Uh, design bid build obviously is when uh, owner hires an architect to design the project. At the end of that design process, it's bid out to a number of potential uh, GCs. One of those GCs is chosen and then they then build it, right? So it's the one that takes the longest, but it also has the, uh, you have the, the most, you're most likely to get the best deal because you've gone through that whole, whole big process. So the project delivery system uh, is design bid build. And the contract specifies that the schematic design is 15% of the contract, design development is 20%, contract documents 45%, bidding 5%, construction administration, which is all the work that the architect does during the construction part of the process, is 15%. Those are pretty typical numbers. They're the, the standard AIA numbers that uh, get defaulted to. You, if you go around the country, you might see slightly different numbers. Sometimes instead of 15, it'll be 18, that kind of thing. Uh, some people do CA, construction administration, at 20%, and then find that 5% somewhere else. So these numbers are not going to always be exactly this, but this is a standard kind of uh, default set of numbers. Uh, so you, it wouldn't be surprising to see these numbers uh, in a contract. 
the time cards for the employees working on the library project have been automatically summarized into the chart that we just saw. Uh, now that the design development drawing set has been signed off by the owner, what do you think, uh, where are we? What, what does the chart tell us? And then we have some possible answers, uh, ahead 8,000, behind uh, uh, 6,100, ahead 60 hours, behind 60 hours, a couple of other possibilities. So let's go back uh, to the chart and start taking a look at this. So a couple of things, um, remember that uh, the overall uh, fee is the 200,000. Sorry, my writing here is in an awkward position, but we'll try to make it a little better. Um, we mentioned that schematic design is uh, 15%. Uh, we mentioned that uh, design development is 20%. Contract documents is 45. Bidding is 5%. And then CA is 15%. Uh, so 15% for schematic design of the 200,000. Uh, that's going to give us approximately $30,000 of time. And so this kind of interesting thing that this chart is really telling us is there's a basic, simple idea here about, uh, about how you kind of manage a project. And the obvious thing to say is time is money. That uh, as somebody is spending time on a project, we have to be able to pay for that person. We have to be able to pay for all of their equipment and everything. And the more time they spend on something, the more it's going to cost an owner. But the tricky part here is that not all time is equal. And this is sort of obvious once you think about it, but it takes a minute. Uh, none of this is uh, rocket science. It's all pretty straightforward. It's just a lot of numbers. And so it looks complicated, but it's actually not that complicated. But this idea that not all time is equal, uh, if you have somebody who has a lot of experience and really knows how to put a set together and knows how to detail and has, you know, uh, very efficient, uh, knows all the systems, uh, well, they're going to be able to do more work and more useful work in one hour than somebody who's just come on and only has a small amount of experience and doesn't, you know, has to ask a lot of questions and maybe has to look up um, things more often, something like that. So clearly the person who has the more expertise is going to be billed at a higher rate. And so every hour that they work on something costs the project more money, whereas the person with less expertise uh, is going to be billed at a lower rate uh, and therefore, every uh, hour that they put into the project will be uh, taking out less money uh, comparatively from the project. But obviously, they have less expertise and maybe they're not as efficient. Uh, the person with more expertise or more efficiency can get stuff done faster. So it's not that one is better than the other or anything like that. You just have to find the appropriate person and the appropriate level of expertise and the appropriate level of efficiency for all the different jobs that are happening on a project. And so this is why uh, running a, a project, project, you know, managing a project is actually complicated. It's not that it's rocket science or anything. It's just that it's more about finding the right person at the right time to do the, the deed that needs to be done in this moment. So let's take a quick look through here. And we have Annabelle, who is a principal, uh, so running the firm essentially. And Annabelle's uh, rate is $200 an hour. 
that's the billable, billable rate. That's so when the client sees that Annabelle has worked on something for an hour, they would get a bill that says $200. Uh, and so therefore for schematic design, Annabelle has put in 10 hours of work and therefore uh, that it qualifies as $2,000 worth of time. Uh, Jose, the project architect, the PA, um, oops, I just crossed off PA, but that's the PA, uh, being billed at 150, um, has spent uh, for schematic design 40 hours, and therefore we have $6,000 in time. Uh, Louise is the PM, the project manager. Um, so PA, project architect, and PM, project manager, are kind of interesting roles. If you start looking at like smaller projects and smaller firms, uh, often the PA slash PM is one person. Uh, as you get into bigger firms and bigger projects, it becomes hard to do both jobs. Uh, so the PA is the person, the project architect is the person who's really in charge of the kind of everyday aspect of the design. Uh, so the principal is the principal in charge, but the person who's actually putting together the design is the PA, the project architect. The PM is the person who's managing everything. So the PM is saying, uh, okay, uh, Mary down here is going to work on, uh, you know, the interior elevations and the something else and do the research on furniture types or something like that, right? So somebody is managing everybody's time and also managing the communication systems. So uh, when are we talking to the client? When are we talking to the consultants? Uh, when do we need to start the process for uh, getting ready to go in for permit? All of those kinds of things. So the project manager, the PM, is, is kind of literally managing everything, whereas the PA, the architect, is the one who's sort of in charge of the design thinking. They're working very closely together, hopefully, uh, in order to then uh, report back and work with the principal who's in charge uh, and uh, make sure that everything is going in the right direction and that you, you don't want the design direction and then the management not to be coordinated well, because then obviously you're going to get the wrong people working on a project and then the time is all going to get messed up. So. Those two, uh, been, uh, we've seen their work, and then we have a couple of other architects. Uh, they're being billed at 120. Uh, Mary is designer, being billed at 80. And wow, there's lowly Mike there, intern being billed at zero. That doesn't seem fair, right? That Mike, well, all right. Um, so we can see kind of how we can figure out how much time has been spent uh, for schematic design. And then we can do the whole thing over again for design development. Uh, you can see the principal, uh, Annabelle, worked on it for 24 hours. Therefore, a certain amount of money is set. And you can see how we could kind of go through and add up all those numbers. Uh, in the interest of time, I'm going to jump to uh, a slightly more filled out version of this same chart. So up here, you can see the $30,000 and the $40,000 for schematic design and design development. Uh, you can see that we haven't gotten to them yet, but contract documents and bidding and construction administration have all their amounts. Uh, and you can see that under schematic design, we have we've apparently spent $28,100 of time. Now, that's pretty useful and interesting to know especially when we take a look at that $30,000, uh, because what that means is when we subtract 28,100 uh, from 30,000, 
it means we are in the plus column of uh, what 1900 I believe so we are uh, ahead of the game by $1,900 at the end of schematic design. But then we take a look at design development uh, and we add up the time that was spent on the design development. Oh, and we have $48,000 uh, worth of time spent. Uh, and we take a look up here and, oh, wait a minute, our allotment was 40,000, but we've spent 48, which means here we are minus 8,000. Uh, the convention in uh, Excel would be to put parentheses around it um, for a minus. So what that's telling us is we've gotten to this point. So we've gotten to the end of design development where uh, we've just got the sign off on design development from the uh, owners. We're about to go into the contract documents. We have a lot of work still to go but we were looking good at the end of schematic design we were ahead of the game but now we lost enough time uh under design development that we are uh still pretty behind the game here so we are sixty one hundred dollars of time behind once you add those two together now why might i want to know this at this point because if I'm managing the project, and this exam is project management, if I'm managing the project, I wanna see that we're $6,100 in time behind before I start deciding who's gonna work on, on what parts of the project. We may realize, wow, uh, we need to uh, be more efficient, uh, therefore we need to find a way to maybe get uh, Jose's amount of time down under the next phase or maybe we can do the bidding more quickly than we thought and kind of lose some some hours there uh, or maybe there's some aspect of what we're imagining for construction administration where we can save some some time and therefore some money uh, but it's a way of sort of foreseeing where the difficulties are and then being able to manage who's working on what in order to get the most efficient person uh, but also the cheapest, most efficient person to do the project in that moment, the, whatever the, the project need is in that moment, in order to, in this case, make back up and get the, uh, the money back uh, on track. Now, this is one of those interesting things. Um, you know, if we just look at that schematic design where we were ahead of the game, um, that's a, you know fairly reasonable. It's like okay, so we made a little extra profit there on schematic design. If if that held true through the rest of it, that'd be great. If you found that uh, we were instead of uh, twenty eight thousand, we had spent say fifteen thousand or twelve thousand dollars worth of time under schematic design, that would tell you there's something missing. You haven't done enough work yet. Like you can't be that ahead of the game. Uh, that means somebody didn't spend time maybe doing a code review or something like there's there's hours of time that didn't get done because uh, you're just not going to be that far off in the same way that if you came through and in that schematic design you had spent say uh, you know forty five or fifty thousand dollars worth of time and you were way 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 over well that means you probably done a bunch of work that really is part of design development but you just kind of shoved it into schematic design. And so part of all of kind of tracking this is just trying to get good at making sure you're doing the, the right job at the right time, uh, partly so that if at the end of schematic design, the project ended, you don't suddenly get screwed because uh, 
the um, owner isn't willing to pay beyond schematic design, even though you were doing work that was beyond schematic design because you weren't controlling the right work being done at the right time. So uh, you can see uh, that our answer here is um, we are behind the game 6100. Um, and if we go back kind of quickly here, we would see that uh, the answer is answer C. Um, but I'm gonna keep talking on this for just a second. Uh, you may have noticed that there's um, some blue numbers in here as well. And so those light blue numbers, what that's showing is that somebody, presumably Louise, the project manager, uh, has gone through before the project started and figured out who was going to work on the project and put down sort of uh, goals for how many hours they would put in under each phase. Uh, and so you can see under schematic design, uh, Louise kind of hit it pretty much on the mark and then that's why it saved a little bit of money. And then when we look under design development, we see everybody's pretty much doing what was expected, but wait a minute, there's a big difference there between 24 and eight for Annabelle. So what that's telling me is that I'm looking at this is that the principal spent way more time under design development than what was expected. Now, that might be that the principal just got excited about the project and spent a bunch of extra time and then is billing it. And that's really a problem for Louise, the project manager, because they got to find a way to cover all that uh, cost of that high billed person that $200 uh, billable rate person, or it more likely is some problem came up, some uh, contract issue came up or uh, some something that required negotiations or uh, somebody had to get, maybe the client was upset about something and Annabelle had to spend time writing a letter or something like that. So it just tells us that something happened there that was unexpected and has thrown off our, our time and money. So you can see why this would be a useful thing is that it gives us an idea about how long everybody should be spending on things. And so you can then kind of carefully control, you know, not only is this project going on, but there's probably a couple of other projects happening in the office. And so you can make sure that not uh, everything is going to one person, that you're balancing out the work for everybody. So this would be the one for this project and you'd have simultaneously these same charts for a whole series of different projects and then you could judge to see you know how well balanced everything is uh, in the office and then you can also look forward and start seeing under contract documents well we want to try to save that uh, that amount of money uh, there for the uh, 6100 maybe we can start finding some some hours in here that would be useful um, so you know uh, maybe Jose at uh, 150 hours during contract documents. Maybe we can find a few hours out of there or uh, maybe uh, Mary at uh, 232. Uh, maybe we can try to bring those hours down. But uh, obviously you still have to get all the work done. So you can't just take hours out. You have to think about how can you still do the work efficiently and well. You might, instead of having a, a you know, the best possible details you could ever imagine. Uh, maybe you find a way to do the details a little more simply and kind of, uh, you know, get the project back in line. It's always a balancing act. You're always trying to, to work it. These are our documents, our working documents. And so the numbers will be constantly changing, not the hours that have already been spent, but the sort of projected uh, times that you're hoping for.
And then you can also sort of see like a head, um, like uh, you can look into bidding and you see that only a few people are involved in the bidding process. And that's mostly going to be uh, Louise and Jose as the project architect and the project manager, and then a few hours of support from, a, from various other people. Uh, when we get into uh, construction administration, again, in this case, it's not always the project manager who does the CA work, but uh, in this case, we're imagining that uh, Louise, that project manager, is the one who's going to be doing the most of the heavy lifting during CA, um, but other people will be needed at different points to review uh, RFIs to produce uh, drawings in response to questions, uh, to bring in certain kinds of expertise at certain points, um, to deal with uh, contract questions that come up. So there'll be more than one person involved in this section, uh, but you can see who's doing most of the work. And so this is a, this kind of uh, chart is a way of documenting all of that information. Uh, and it, you know, if you got it right pretty close, well, then the next project, you can use that as a template uh, and start to adjust the numbers to the, the project size, but you're adjusting them from some knowledgeable piece of information. And if you keep track of these things, you can start to find, you know, we are always behind on design development. Maybe we need to rethink how we do that. Uh, maybe, maybe we need to charge more for design development. Maybe 20% isn't the right amount for that. Or maybe we're just billing, maybe our overall prices are too low and we need to, uh, even though it's a danger of losing a project because you may not be the low bidder anymore, but maybe we need, instead of 200,000, maybe it really should be 220,000 or something. So these are both useful tools for the project itself but then they're also useful when you start combining them together over a span of years uh, and looking simultaneously at what's going on at, in the project, in the office at any one time to look at much bigger issues for the uh, uh, design firm. Uh, so that's a lot of stuff. Like I said, none of it's rocket science. The arithmetic here is very simple. You could probably answer this as long as you kind of know what you're looking for, you could probably answer this after you've read the question in maybe 30 seconds or something just by doing a couple quick additions. Um, but it looks complicated and it seems complicated, but this is the heart of project management. So uh, I, it's hard to know exactly what kind of question they would give, um, but something like this that sort of touches on some of these issues is pretty likely. Okay, moving on to number two. Uh, how much does Louise make? So if we go back to that chart for a second, there's Louise. Louise's billable rate uh, is 140. So the billable rate doesn't mean that Louise is making $140 an hour. Uh, but what it means is, is that all of the stuff like uh, rent, uh, computer equipment, uh, insurance, uh, plus Louise's costs, uh, Louise's insurance, um, like her own health insurance, uh, and you know all those other costs uh, that allow you to run an office all have to be covered by this billable rate. Uh, and so the typical way of thinking about this is you have the amount of money that somebody is making, and you have that multiplied. This is, sorry, it's my angle here is very awkward. I'm gonna change it for next time. Um, but it's multiplied uh, by a multiplier. Um, and so those multipliers are typically 
three to four, somewhere in that range. Um, and then that is going to equal the billable rate. Um, so So since what we know is the billable rate, which is 140, then uh, any answer here, if you took 140 and divided it by four, then that would be 35 dollars an hour. Uh, if you divided it by three, then that would be 46, I believe. Uh, dollars an hour. So if you answered this anywhere from say 32 to 48, that would be a correct answer. So let's say 32 to 48, somewhere in that range. Now, when we actually look at this, um, we've, we've said three to four as our multiplier. Um, in actuality, you'll find maybe it goes really from about 2.5 to 4.5. Um, and why would it range so much? Well, it's gonna range for a couple different reasons. One reason that, that that multiplier will range is different parts of the country just have different costs. Uh, and so certain parts of the country might be a little lower, certain parts of the country might be a little higher, um, you know, places that have very, very high rents, uh, you just can't get away with a lower multiplier, um, you know, things like that. So different parts of the country might be a little different. That's one of the reasons for a range. Another reason for a range is different uh, architectural typologies might have a different range. Uh, certain kinds of uh, uh, firms that do uh, high production work uh, might have a certain kind of uh, multiplier, whereas firms that uh, do very high-end, high customer satisfaction, uh, single-family houses would might have a different one, and people who do uh, high-rises might have a different one, right? So different typologies can have different uh, multipliers. And then, and this is the, the one that sort of wrench in the system here is not only parts of the country and different typologies, but also in different economic moments. Uh, it would not be terribly surprising if uh, right at the moment, uh, quite a lot of the administration of a lot of design firms were reevaluating what their multiplier was uh, in this moment uh, because of uh, COVID-19. Um, as the economy is a little bit in question, uh, and you may start thinking, well, maybe we need to uh, be more streamlined and you know get rid of some of our extra costs and find a way to be more competitive because we're worried about the economy. Um, and so the whether the economy is booming or the economy is having trouble, that may also raise or lower that multiplier. If the economy is booming, then maybe I want to have a lot of amenities in my office and you know brand new computers because I want to, uh, encourage the best, most talented young uh, designers to come join us, and so I want them to know that we're, you know, we're giving them benefits. They're getting good, uh, good, good, high-quality computers. So my costs might be going up. Therefore, my multiplier would have to go up. So uh, there's many different things that can push this number up and down. But the typical range that you will see people talk about is three to four. All right. Onto a different kind of uh, question. Number three, at the end of schematic design, the architects working on the project should do what prior to presenting the work to the client? Choose three. So we have finalized program, review the work against code analysis and the program, make construction cost analysis, review the shop drawings, order the environmental phase one analysis, 
review the progress uh, with the consultants. So at the end of schematic design, uh, the architects working on the project, before they presented to the client, uh, what should they be doing? So if we said, A, finalize the program, the trouble with that is that the program really should have been part of the initial contract that was given to the contract to the architect. So if the architect already has the program from the owner, they shouldn't be finalizing anything in schematic design. Now, here's one of those little moments where you have to realize the, you know, the world of NCARB and AIA will say, this is absolutely not true. Uh, it, you're not doing, you're not finalizing the program during schematic design. However, in the real world, very few programs are actually really fully uh, thought through and wrought. That you usually will end up spending, the architect will usually end up spending some time analyzing the program and maybe giving feedback and getting some, some slight changes. So it is in actuality quite likely that you would be messing around with the program a little bit, but from a strictly uh, kind of by the book aspect, uh, the program is is set when you uh, sign the contract. Uh, and there's a good reason for that because you should be signing a contract for a specific uh, project. You can't really sign a project without having a program attached to it. It doesn't make any sense. So it's not A. Uh, and how about D? I'm gonna take D right off here as well. Shop drawings are something that happens during um, the construction phase not, sometimes it's a little earlier than that, but um, typically during the construction phase, the shop drawings are the drawings that after you, let's say, for example, you and your consultant team produce uh, the steel drawings for how the project is gonna go for all the steel beams and columns. Well, then the folks who are making those steel beams are going to do their own drawings and send them back to the GC, who's then gonna send them on to the architect and. Uh, you're going to take a look at them, you're going to review them and just make sure that uh, they understood your drawings correctly. Uh, there's a bunch of very specific ways that you would talk about that. And you have to be a little careful about like you're not approving them in for a bunch of different specific things, but you are approving them from the sense, does this actually fall into the design intent that you had expected? Um, so that's something totally different. Shop drawings happens much later. And then the other one that I'm going to say no to is E which is order the environmental phase one analysis. Now, it could be that you are part of that, um, but not in a typical architectural setting. Uh, the environmental phase one is uh, an environmental review of a site. Um, there's a phase one and then a phase two. The phase one is the sort of simpler, faster, uh, uh, they only do a little bit of, of checking. They may not even go onto the site. They may just uh, look around uh, from in some uh, you know, maps and other files to uh, GPS uh, information to, to find some uh, uh, useful information. And so a phase one is when uh, somebody says, look, we've, we've looked at the site and uh, there's nothing here that warrants deeper analysis. It doesn't seem like there's any hazardous materials on the site. So, you know, go ahead, essentially. Uh, if instead they said on phase one, hey, we've looked and there's a bunch of upsetting things. Like we did a walkthrough and we looked stuff, you know, the tile that we saw 
looks like that old 1950s asbestos tile and you know there used to be a gas station next door so there's probably some underground uh, um, you know leaking problems over the years and a few other things well then that would say all right time to order the phase two uh, and the phase two would go in, actually do the testing, you know, really figure it all out and to give you very detailed information back about how you can deal with those issues. But you're not, as the architect, ordering that. That's something that the owner orders. It's part of the owner's obligation, um, uh, along with the program, along with the survey, along with the geotechnical information for soils. Uh, those are all part of the owner's obligation. So that leaves us with the three answers. B, review the work against the code analysis and the program. And that is absolutely true, especially from an NCARB standpoint, um, that part of one of the big things that the architect does is in the beginning of the project, you've got a budget, you've got a program. And at the very beginning, you do a code analysis, uh, building code and zoning code. And you think about those issues. And then at the end of each phase, you need to take a look at your work and make sure did we you know we said that uh you know these bunch of issues were going to be important when we did the code analysis and when we looked at the program we knew that the hard parts were going to be these three issues you got to go back and look did we actually meet those issues did we are we still on track and the same thing would happen when you get to the end of design development and the same thing would happen when you get to the end of the cd phase you want to make sure before you send this project out to get uh, you know, bid uh, at the end of CDs, you wanna make sure that we still meet the code analysis, we still meet the program issue, we still meet the budget that we expected to be on. Um, so this is one of those things, that idea of constantly going back and reviewing those very specific issues at set milestones completely makes sense. Because the last thing you wanna do is present a schematic design project to a client that doesn't actually meet code, because then as you figure that out, you're gonna have to find some way to backtrack your design ideas and get them pulled away from the client after you've already sold them on it, and now they want whatever that was. And this sounds like sort of an obvious thing, but you'll find it's very easy when you're working on a project, and like maybe in the code analysis, you find that there's a 45 foot height limit in, in this, uh, for this uh, project. And then as you're going along, everybody gets really excited by like the big curving roof that came up in one of the design models. And you have this big flying, you know, flying roof uh, overhang. And maybe it goes up to 52 feet or something. If you haven't gone back and checked that number, what was it again? It was, oh, it was 45, wait, we are over the height limit. Uh, you don't wanna show that 52 foot high uh, flying roof to the client and get them to fall in love with it and then what are you gonna do? You have to go for a variance or something that's gonna cost a bunch of money and time. Uh, so it's just the kind of thing you wanna be really careful about these things. And you're always checking against budget, program, and the code analysis. Make a construction cost analysis is another one that you would do because you do an initial cost analysis. No, it doesn't say cost estimate. Cost estimates um, are really the world of the contractor, but at the end of each phase, you have to check, are we still on track with the budget? Uh, and so we would do that at the end of schematic design, we would do that at the end of design development, and then at the end of CDs, we wouldn't do it actually, because that's what the bidding is for. Now, in actuality, if you're a smart firm, you're also doing your own code anal cost analysis before you send it out to bid, because you wanna make sure that the bids are gonna come back reasonably close. Um, but our versions tend to be much simpler and more 
generic, uh, whereas the contractor version of a cost estimate should be much more uh, determined and line item focused and everything actually figured out. And then uh, the review, the progress with the consultants, uh, that's another big end carb thing. Anytime you can have like, uh, if the answer on the, on the exam is have meetings every two weeks to review progress, that's going to be the right answer, right? NCARB is a big believer in uh, kind of organizing the process or, you know, managing the process. Uh, and so in this case, meeting at, at specific milestones with, the, with your consultants, so the structural engineers, mechanical engineers, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and saying, all right, here's where we're at. Is everybody still on board? Everybody's still uh, coordinated and connected. Everybody knows what they need to do for the next phase. So B, C, and F are the answers for that one. Hey, Mike, um, a couple questions on the community uh, asking, could the client so um, could the client contract with the architect to help with programming as an additional service or? A absolutely, yeah. Asked um, if that would be a supplemental service, like which one? Yeah, so there's there's two different ways to do to do that. It would be as a supplemental service, or you could uh, be hired by the client with a completely separate contract, um, especially if it's part of a kind of a feasibility study thing. Often, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I know I've done this many times where we would uh, get involved with a client, um, we would charge them some small amount of money to uh, help them think through the program and maybe you know look at like is this really the right place to put a daycare center or is this really the right place to put uh, you know the storefront for a bike shop or something you know whatever it is or something bigger whatever um, and so that can actually be a separate contract and then at the end of that they might you know think about it talk with their board talk with the uh, you know other folks get some other information in talk to their bankers and then say okay yeah we're gonna go forward or they may say no we're not gonna go forward but at least you got paid from that contract whatever amount of money it was uh, and then when they're ready to go they start a new contract and then they give you the program that you just helped them write um, or as somebody in the questions mentioned it, you can actually do it as a supplemental service uh, but it's not an assumed part of the basic services uh, of the architect. And the reason it's not an assumed part is it's very hard to sign a contract uh, if you don't know what the program is. But yes, absolutely, it can be done a couple different ways. And often architects are involved. Like um, I said, technically, they're not really supposed to be uh, because you're supposed to have the program when you start the contract. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's helpful. That's a great uh, sort of clarification of the whole point. Um, uh, on the on the community here in this thread, um, can you just tell the difference? What's the difference between an additional service and a supplemental service? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> there, there, there's sort of just uh, one is the the so there's the basic services in the contract, which is. Uh, when you say basic services, this actually confuses clients all the time. I actually don't like the terminology that they use. Um, but the basic services are essentially the things that, you know, pretty much every project will follow these same basic uh, ways of kind of doing some. So schematic design, design development, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you, you'll play certain certain roles in the project. You'll do certain things. We'll follow the milestones. So the sort of basic way that a project is going to go forward is considered basic services. Uh, 
but then there's a whole bunch of other things like maybe marketing drawings or uh, as built at the end. Often the building that gets built isn't quite exactly the way that it was designed. And there may be totally reasonable reasons for that. Uh, you know, something came up, a thing from an inspector made the uh, wall move here or there, or uh, the HVAC didn't fit, it turned out. And so we had to lower a ceiling or something. And so sometimes it's useful for the owners to have, okay, what actually got built? Um, and you, that means you would go back through, you'd measure everything again, and you'd, you'd change the drawings and then submit that as an as-built. Well, not every project is going to need that, so that falls into that supplemental services kind of category. So there's, this is, there's the, the basic services, and then there's supplemental. And then you can also add any number of other things, and that's what the additional services are. So supplemental and additional are essentially the same thing. They just kind of break out into kind of known listed ones and uh, kind of anything anything goes. If you can sign a contract for whatever you want, um, and so you know you can write it into the contract. You just uh, the um, just some things are sort of more expected than others. And so they have a little checklist in the contract. So like, it'll be a little box that says uh, as-built, question mark. And if you check the box, that means those as-built are expected as part of this contract. Um, remember also, you know, if you have, even in the basic services, you when you're negotiating with a client, we may go back and forth. I just did this two days ago. Uh, we may go back and forth and we might, cross out parts of the basic services. This is part of why I don't like the word basic services. Um, because, you know, for one, some given client, like maybe you have a client that is very knowledgeable about construction and they do projects all the time and they really don't need you to do the construction administration. It's just, they just don't want you to do that. And so they'll just cross that part out of the basic services. Um, so, you know, co contracts are manipulable. Um, there's just sort of a basic, what's in the standard is what you'll be asked about on the exam. Thanks, Mike, I appreciate that. Uh, it's so funny they asked that question because I was literally just asked that by a client two days ago. Um, okay, number four, the architect claims that the project is at substantial completion, which of the following are implicated? Um, so substantial completion is this really unusual sort of marker milestone in a project. Uh, and in many ways, most uh, architects are kind of like, oh God, substantial completion. Like, cause it's sort of a bureaucratic uh, pain, pain to deal with. Um, and it's an interesting term, right? Because substantial complete is not final complete. All it means is, eh, we're close to complete, which is sort of a weird, like, why do we care if we're close to complete? Like, don't we really only care when we're complete? Um, but it turns out it's actually useful in a bunch of situations, not every situation, but in a bunch of situations to be able to say, okay, uh, the project has been going on for a long time. The owner is losing money. They need to get in uh, and start using the space. Uh, you know, are we, are we complete enough to allow the owner and the client to move into the space? And that's the big sort of line that's being drawn is 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 enough done that they could actually move in even though there's still more construction work to go so uh client is allowed to move in is absolutely one of the things that's really the main driver of substantial completion but then in order to allow them to move in 
one of the things that really means is, well, that means it has to be code compliant enough that it's safe for people to actually start occupying the building. So you couldn't have, you couldn't claim substantial completion if say uh, the stairs were in, but none of the handrails were in yet. Um, you know, if the handrails aren't in, that's not code compliant enough. Uh, it would be unsafe for people to be, to be able to move in. But imagine you have a situation, I don't know if you guys can hear my dog in the background, sorry. Um, uh, if you, imagine you have a situation. Um, Mike, most where, importantly, what's your dog's name? <laughs> <laughs> uh, dog is Viola. So there you go. We're actually thinking about changing. We just adopted her uh, about a week ago. So it's very really? exciting. Yeah. Uh, she has the saddest face in the world. Um, she's super cute. But okay, back to this. Uh, send us a picture for the love of God. Uh, we can post this on the- on, I'll send you something you can put it up. Um, uh, so, but like instead of handrails, let's imagine, let's say you were putting in a bunch of kitchens um, and uh, one of the cabinets was uh, misordered for some reason. And so you can't put the cabinet in, you can put all the other cabinets in and you can get all the stairs in, you can do all that stuff. But the that one cabinet is on a, you know, six week uh, reorder and it's going to take a long time for because we're getting it from germany or whatever and then it'll show up eventually well nobody's gonna fall and you know kill themselves because there's a cabinet missing uh so that's fine like we can claim substantial completion if you know some of the bookshelves aren't up or it's not fully painted yet or you know a bunch of work can still go on after substantial completion but it has to meet enough of the code that it would be safe for somebody to go in and this is why it's a little tricky for architects because as the architect you are the one saying yes we are substantially complete and then you will review that not every municipality will have the manpower to do this but presumably you would review that with inspectors the inspectors would sign off uh, and so therefore it you know when you claim it with the inspector's help uh, it's now considered substantially complete um, and then the owners can move in doesn't mean they have to but it means they can move in <clears throat> One of the things that's a little odd about this is that the other part here that is also true is that the warranties start. So imagine on most things, certain things you'll get much longer warranties, but on most things you're going to get a one-year warranty. Well, let's say you claim substantial completion at the first possible chance you could, and then the owners didn't actually move in for three months or something, uh, you know, because there was still work going on. They didn't want to have their people moving in while the contractors were still there. Well, by claiming it so fast and so early, what you've effectively done is give the owners only nine months of their warranty because the first three months of warranty when it started at uh, substantial completion and they didn't move in for three months, well, you know, they're only going to get warranty for the nine months. Um, so it's a tricky thing. There's also a bunch of other stuff about like, uh, if the GC is paying for the electricity on the site, if the ownership is now moving in, then they suddenly take over the uh, paying of electricity. That doesn't always happen. Sometimes contracts get a little confusing on this. That's why I didn't put it in the question. Um, but like lots of things will start to flip over at this moment of substantial completion. And so it's this kind of annoying bureaucratic thing, but it has this weird level of importance uh, that uh, can be really meaningful to a project. Uh, imagine you have a bunch of people, say, uh, still working on and painting and uh, putting flooring down and things like that uh, in a construction site, and you have people moving furniture in and uh, bringing their file cabinets and you know all that kind of stuff. It's like, 
it's a it's a terrible idea to have the people moving in while the construction is still going on but like what if they have to maybe it's a school and school starts you know you got the school's got to start right so the kids are going to show up oh, i guess sometimes not right now but um uh or you know the the company's losing money you know we don't like we had to, we got booted out of our previous place and uh cuz the 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 construction went on longer than we thought so we hadn't re-upped our our um uh our rental of a office space and so you know we've got to move everybody in right so things happen that make this uh necessary but substantial completion moving in at that point generally is a bad idea it's just often the better of the bad ideas um, and then a the couple of the quick things to say about the non ones. So RFIs, request for information. Uh, RFI is what the contractor would give you during the construction process when something comes up, like some piece of information isn't clear on the drawings or just more detail. Maybe you say wood shelves and they want to know what species it is or you know something like that. So they'll send you an RFI. Um, all RFIs completed. All, all RFIs may not be completed until the actual last day of construction. So you can't say that. Hopefully, most of them are completed because you don't want to have a lot of last-minute RFIs. But you can't say for sure that those are completed. There might be, like I said, months more of construction. The punch list must be finished. Uh, you know, usually you're starting the punch list right around. Uh, maybe a little before substantial completion and the process of the punch list may take a month or something as an issue comes up uh, uh, somebody has to uh, be brought back in to you know fix the you know maybe the the hot water says cold water and the cold water says hot water or something like that so the plumber has to come back in and switch the lines or some simple mistake was made well it may take a while to get that plumber back in to make that change so the punch list you know, hopefully it gets done pretty fast, but you can't say for sure that it's going to be done fast. Uh, and then uh, E must have completed final change order. You never know, man. There could be change orders up to the last second. Uh, in fact, often change orders, uh, the final final change orders are often just financial dealings and negotiation about uh, final things. And they may happen actually well after all the construction is done. So uh, the final change order could be very much at the at the very end. Okay, last one. Uh, contractor has a question, and she calls you on the phone. What should you do? Okay, a one of uh, your roles as the architect is to help the contractor understand the design intent, so they can fully uh, they can fulfill their work correctly. So of course you answer the question. B. You never answer a direct question uh, uh, from the contractor as you do not have a contract with the contractor. They need to formally ask the owner uh, who they have a contract with, and then the owner formally asks you the question. C, depends where in the project schedule it is. And then D, who answers a phone anymore? Uh, and then I realized, you know, that will be so true for so many of you that I had to say, this is a joke. Don't answer this as the answer. <laughs> um, uh, it is weird in, in my time, like, you know, when I first started as an architect, it was all about phone. Uh, and then it became about email and then it became, you know, now it's all in text and now that's uh, crazy. Um, so, okay. A, B or C, uh, the trouble with A, uh, is there are times when you actually don't want to answer the question. You will eventually, but not there on the phone. Um, 
the an example of that would be is this contractor a bidder um and so there's multiple contractors and one of them is calling you and has a clarification question if you answer that question that means that bidder has different information from the other bidders uh and so that's everything has to be in the bid process apples to apples so what you're going to do is you're going to collect all those questions and you're going to create an addenda uh, and the addenda may directly answer the question or it may just provide information in a different format that allows for that answer to be knowable. Um, uh, you might have uh, from five different uh, uh, bidding contractors, you might have uh, say 20 different questions and you group them together into different categories and then we write out uh, the questions and the answers. Um, and sometimes I can just write it, uh, yes or no, something like that. Sometimes we have to do a whole new drawing because it's actually a really good question and they need to get more information. Uh, and then we submit that uh, addenda to all of the bidders and it actually technically becomes part of the bid package. So it is part of the thing that they are bidding on at that point. And then maybe I get a whole bunch more questions at which point I collect all those questions and I have addenda number two and that becomes part of the bid package. And then I get addenda number three. You hope not to have too many addendas because it makes it look like the drawings aren't very well organized uh, or understandable. Um, so, you know, hopefully you can do it in one or two. Um, you know, every project is different. Sometimes you have to rush the project because of the timeline of the project. And when you rush a project, you're going to have more addenda questions. Um, uh, other times it might be just a very big project and very confusing and it just you just bound to have a lot of questions um, but hopefully you know you keep it pretty tight and every, you don't need that many but that's an example where you would not answer the question uh, so I'm gonna say no on a I can think of some other examples um, what if the contractor is the painter um, and the painter is uh, saying something about you know changing this or that um, you don't have a contract with the painter and you should be talking to the GC. The GC should be talking to the painter. Um, and so this is one of those moments where you do need to follow the, the contracts because the GC may have other information that you don't have. Uh, so it's okay for the painter to say, hey, I have this question. I'm going to go talk to the GC. And then just so you know, they're going to ask you this question. Um, like it's okay to talk to them. It's not that you can't talk to anybody but the information should flow through the appropriate channels. Uh, the classic example of that is like the uh, mechanical installer, the people who are putting in the ductwork, for example, uh, wanna talk to the mechanical engineer. And so the, your desire usually is to say, all right, here's their phone number, call them directly. But the danger of that is if the uh, installer of the ductwork is talking directly to the mechanical engineer, they're gonna make some uh, smart thing that makes total sense for their agenda, but their agenda is not your agenda. And it may be that you and the general contractor know other pieces of information. So they may do something that makes the uh, HVAC more efficient, but maybe it makes it bigger and now it doesn't fit in the ceiling cavity because that just got changed between the owner and the GC and the architect. Uh, and so that those two players just wouldn't know that yet. So this is the kind of reason why it's important that you follow the paths of the contracts in these discussions. Now, that sounds sort of officious, like really the 
that contractor has to talk to the GC who then talks to the architect who then talks to the to the consultant that seems sort of annoying well yeah you can do it through like a game of telephone like that or it could just be a conference call where you're all on the same call or uh, you go to a site meeting and we're all sitting in a conference room together or something like that uh, or a zoom call we're all on it together like it doesn't mean it has to be a lot of paperwork it just means that you don't want to miss the information that these other players have so there's a bunch of reasons why A is not uh, the, the correct answer. And then B, you never answer a direct question from the contractor as you do not have a contract with the contractor. Well, that's true sort of and sort of not true. Um, it is true that with a general contractor, the architect does not have a contract with the general contractor. However, the typical AIA contracts, which is what you will be asked about on the exam, the B101, the owner architect agreement, and the A101, the owner contractor agreement, both reference in the general conditions, the A201. If you don't know those terms, you should get to know them. You, you want to read those documents and, and get familiarized with them. Um, the, the general conditions of the A201 are referenced in to each of those two contracts. So it's the general conditions has... Oops, Sorry. Um, the general conditions has a bunch of definitions and a bunch of information in there that says this is how the contractor and the architect are going to communicate. So even though we don't have a direct contract with the general contractor, we do actually have a system of communication with them. So it's not B. So the real answer here is C. It really depends on where in the project schedule it is. So if we're doing uh, during the addenda phase, during the bidding phase, then there's one answer. If we have a GC and they are the contractor and it's the general contractor who's calling you with the question, then yeah, you should answer her question. Uh, if uh, it's uh, before, um, the, during CDs, well, maybe it depends. Like, are they just trying to angle to get no, to know more information before the bid set goes out? Maybe you sh maybe you're not allowed to, to answer a question for them yet, because then that would give them a chance to do research ahead before other potential bidders had the information. So it totally depends on where you are in the project about how you would answer this question. And this is sort of a classic. NCARB type question where there's a lot of specific answers and all these specific ways and they all sound sort of right uh, and then there'll be a, a answer like um, you know it might, might be a question about are you liable for uh, uh, problems on the site during construction and you know you might think well no that's the general contractors thing but one of the answers might say well it depends on what you said while you're walking on the site because if you claimed responsibility for safety, then yes, you would in fact be liable for it, right? So that's the kind of thing you have to watch out for are these things, these sort of questions where they want you to understand that uh, it's, more, it's more nuanced than just a simple yes or no, right? And in this case, the more nuanced is, well, it depends on where you are in the timeline. All right. And also, nice, of course, D is also the answer because really, who the hell answers their phone anymore? How funny that your phone rang while while talking right, about right here doing that. <laughs> that I was know, me. That was me. Haha. Thought I turned off the the ringer, but I guess I didn't. <laughs> oh man, that's funny. Um, got uh, two two questions here um, uh, on the AR community here. Um, the first is uh, from R. Michelman. 
uh, is environmental phase one analysis an industry-wide term? And then he follows with a couple other questions. What does it cover? Is it an AIA document? Is it a report that is submitted to a, an agency or only the owner? Who determines whether uh, additional yeah. environmental phases are required, et cetera? It's actually, it's a really interesting uh conversation and if you're especially if you're interested in this kind of thing i would definitely recommend uh if you you know if you google phase one phase two like you'll a bunch of interesting information will pop up and uh and you can see examples uh, of them uh and uh, on on the black spectacles thing we go over it quite extensively um uh so there's there's a bunch of information out there but the sort of short version of a very long story is when environmental concerns really started to uh, become uh, litigious and complicated uh, back in probably after the 60s, probably sometime in the 70s, uh, lead paint and asbestos, people realized were problems and uh, uh, architects started getting sued as, along with lots of other people, uh, manufacturers of uh, products and things. The litigiousness of it um, meant that the sort of architectural powers that be essentially uh, kind of removed the architectural work from uh, the people in charge, so made it so that the architects were never the people in charge of making decisions about environmental issues. Uh, and therefore the owners, because it's their properties, uh, they are in charge of the environmental issues um, that's not environmental issues that you are designing. This is environmental issues that are like, you know, on the site or, you know, maybe you're reusing an old building and you're going to take an old loft building and make it into a uh, housing or something. Well, what was in that loft? You know, is there a lot of asbestos? Is there lead paint? Is there uh, heavy metals from whatever they were uh, making uh, in that industrial space? Uh, all of those kinds of issues. Uh, or even just in an open land, you know, maybe it was buried tanks or uh, uh, I did a project where the big environmental problem once uh, was that there had been uh, 30 years before a dry cleaner two blocks away uh, and that the chemicals that the dry cleaner were, were using had seeped into the soils and then had migrated through the soil into our soil. Um, so like, you know, these kinds of toxic uh, chemical and, and other kinds of hazardous issues, environmental issues, uh, can be very complicated. Um, and it just, the typical architect just wasn't ready to be able to be like fully responsible uh, for the litigious nature of, of the situation where, you know, people can get, uh, you know, sick and suddenly you're talking about 30, 40 years later, people have leukemia and all these, like, it's just, it's way bigger than what, you know, the architect's insurance could really do. Um, and so this whole other industry of uh, environmental uh, scientists and reviewers kind of came into being. Um, and so the owners go straight to them. So there's, there are plenty of uh, environmental forms that you can find in the AIA documents, but most are most phase one and phase twos are not actually using anything from the architectural world. They're uh, part of the owner's world and they write their own, uh, their own documents. So the phase one is the simple version where they go through, take a quick look, they look at the where it is on the map, they look at some other information, what kind of what used to be there, et cetera, et cetera, and they just make a general statement. And that general statement may be, 
oh boy, if I was you, I would do some more more work on this. Uh, or it may be, oh, yeah, it looks fine. I don't, we don't expect to find any environmental problems. Doesn't mean you're not going to find, like as they go through and you know excavate, something unexpected may show up in, in the soils or you know, whatever, like, you know, they're not promising it. They're saying nothing jumps out at us as going to be a problem. But if if the phase one comes back saying, oh boy, there's, you know, when we did a walkthrough, that sure looked like asbestos and, you know, the age of those wood windows, I'll bet that's uh, got a lot of uh, lead paint on there and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, then that would show up in there and that would mean that the ownership before really any bank or any funder or anybody was going to be willing to give them money to move forward, the, that that funder, that bank is going to want to want to know that they got a handle on what the issues are. Uh, and so you do the phase two, and then somebody goes in and actually cores a little hole in the wood and and takes it back and they test the paints and is it lead and is it peeling and is it a problem and they they take a little sample of the tile that they thought was an asbestos tile and they'll take that back to the lab and check it out and then they'll do more deep research into the area and they'll you know take soil uh, borings not big ones like you would do for a structure although sometimes you can combine them together um, but they'll take uh, soil borings and test the soils and look for things there etc cetera, etc cetera. there's you know there's you know hundreds of different possible things they might be looking for and so the phase two is that much more detailed you wouldn't bother spending the money on the phase two if the phase one was like eh, everything looks great um, so you know, many projects, eh, phase one's fine, everybody just moves forward. But, you know, enough of the time, there's enough worry there that you have to move into a phase two. It's really the uh, the owner's issue, but then at the end of the phase two, or the phase one, but more typically the phase two, there'll be a series of recommendations. And the architect's role is to read the recommendations, understand the recommendations, and then through their design work, respond to those recommendations. So for example, maybe there's some really bad soils, but it's a lot of bad soil and the sort of expectation from the environmental scientist is, uh, well, we could remove all that soil, but like that's gonna be a huge big deal. Maybe a better choice is to encapsulate it and to cover it with you know concrete or something. Well, then the architect would look at that and say, okay, gotcha, we're gonna cover this uh, and encapsulate it in our design drawings and then later in our uh, uh, permit and, and construction drawings. Uh, so we would be responding to the information in the uh, reports. And yes, phase one and phase two, environmental phase one, environmental phase two are standard industry terms. You will find it across the country. You might see some other terms, but um, typically if you see a slightly different term thing and it's not called a phase one or a phase two, that means they're not taking the responsibility of a phase one or phase two. And so it's more informational and maybe not um, as uh, uh, contract driven or, or uh, legally driven. Like you might get an environmental report um, and that would just be a useful thing before they actually did some more deep seated work for a phase two. Sorry, that was very long. It's hard to talk about these without getting into all the detail. Yeah, no worries. Uh, I think that matches, you know, the, the, the volume of questions we had there. So that that was perfect, Mike. So thank you very much for answering that one and uh, and for going through these questions. Thanks everybody for tuning in. Um, as I've mentioned in our next ARE Live podcast, we're going to review uh, a mock exam for project planning and design. Um, again, this is a beast of an exam, so 
Uh, we'll touch on a handful of questions that'll kind of focus on some of the harder topics there. Uh, we just posted the link to register in the chat box in the GoToWebinar control panel, or you can just go to blackspectacles.com slash podcast to sign up. Uh, to learn a little bit more about our all any of our ARE exam prep offerings, of course, you can go to blackspectacles.com uh, where you can try out some of the course videos. And then today, as I mentioned, uh, we did do a drawing. Uh, we had quite a few folks over in the, our ARE community who were posting questions uh, and posting their responses to the questions that we put out in the mock exam. And so our winner of a uh, free Black Spectacles t-shirt is Jeff Smith. So Jeff, congratulations. We'll reach out to you via email uh, to get all the information we need and uh, get a t-shirt get a coming your way. So thank you and thanks everybody who posted over there on- Best t-shirt um, in uh, architecture. That's right. Um, and just one note, you know, we introduced something new last week uh, that I just want to sort of comment on briefly. Uh, we're calling it uh, our ARE um, hotline. And it's kind of awesome. We actually have uh, a hand, I think we have uh, six architects who've uh, each uh, committed to focusing on one division of the exam. So one exam each. And they're, they're going to answer questions on our ARE community. Any question you have, if you want to understand what a swale is, whatever it is, drop it in that exam's um, ARE hotline, and within uh, a day, you'll get an answer from uh, from someone on our team. So I uh, just wanted to point that out. That's a free service, um, so uh, you guys should, you know, can take advantage of it. Um, so far, it's been really well received. Uh, so again, I'd encourage you guys to go to our free ARE community and check that out. Uh, for those of you who are ready to start preparing for the ARE right now, maybe those of you who've uh, already committed to taking an exam uh, or signing up for one, uh, you can use uh, a coupon code. Um, and this uh, this uh, month we're doing PJM052120 PC to get a 15% discount for the entire duration of your Black Spectacles ARE prep membership. So you can use that on any of our memberships. And then um, finally, tomorrow, we'll email all of you a follow-up about today's live broadcast. So please let us know what you think. Share any suggestions that you may have. Uh, we read everything that you guys uh, write, and we use that to tune our next episodes. So thanks for tuning in.